listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is a show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 256. What's up, Mark? It's freezing, literally. Yeah. <laughs> Too chilly for me. Yeah, and rest of the country, don't make fun of Texas that we freak out when it gets below 45. <laughs> well, I, I'm pretty sure we all have PTSD from last year. Yeah. So yeah. last I mean, year at this time was horrendous. That was that big outage that took a lot of the grid down in Texas. Luckily, right now, everything I've seen, we've had some small outages, but nothing major like that. The sun's out. It's 38 degrees. So it's not horrendous like it was yesterday. Yeah. No, the wind was killing it. And then, you know, the humidity. But speaking of killing it, we got a review. Oh, yeah. Five star knowledgeable staff. With good foresight, Jessup 1977. See, you could be just like Jessup 1977 in a couple of words. Hit that submit and we'll give you a big shout out on the show. And Paige, it's really interesting. We've got a lot of reviews. I think that's it's because we keep asking I for think it's it. because we beg it for them. But sincerely, you know, all your new listeners, all of our longtime listeners, we appreciate when you leave us a review. Let's get into news stories. All right. Here's a big one. Nigerian oil production and storage vessel explodes. Yeah, FPSO, floating production storage, floating production storage. You're the one that told me what this meant because I didn't uh, know what it was right. Ha ha. <laughs> floating production storage and something else. Damn, I can't remember what the O stands for. But anyway. Offloading. Offloading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what these are, these are vessels. Think of maritime vessels, think of ships that can actually park over an existing well, connect to a riser pump up that mixture of oil and gas and sand and water and everything else, separate it at the boat on the surface, compartmentize it, and then take that gas and oil that's left and then bring it to shore or to a terminal somewhere and offload it. Real popular in Brazil and becoming more popular in the U.S. They serve a good purpose. Unfortunately, in this case, in Nigeria, this FPSO caught on fire and actually partially sank. I think they had a crew member of 13 on board, and they have yet to find any of them. Now, because the water there is warm and because the search parties are still going on, there's still high hopes that we'll find people that are alive. But by the time that the officials and the rescue crew showed up there, the fire was so intense they couldn't get close to the facility. So we're going to keep an eye on this, you know, hearts and prayers to the people on that FPSO. We just want to make sure everybody's safe. So like I said, we're going to track this story, but our prayers that, that people survive and they're able to find them. Yeah, it actually says 10 crewmen on board. 10. Okay, yeah. So we're missing 10 people. You know, like I said, let's hope we find those 10. And because the water is not cold, there's a good chance of their survival. Good, good. All right, so the next one is Exxon earnings beat as oil major shakes up reporting structure. <laughs> they killed it, Paige. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, all the super majors did well, but you know, Exxon was expected to do 84 billion in revenue, they did 85 billion. Their revenue was up over 82% from last year. Their capital spending rose a decent amount, $6 billion, but that's in line with what they're supposed to do. Cash flow from operations hit $48 million. That's the highest since 2012 that they had that type of operational cash. And then they're pumping back money into a lot of their businesses, which we could talk about later. But this is just great for the shareholders of ExxonMobil. In full transparency, I am a shareholder of ExxonMobil. But this is just really good. It's good to see the super majors weather the storm and then come yeah. out of it and then making money now. And then the kind of bad thing is in the public that doesn't understand the industry, they're getting some backlash for making money right now. 
folks, you can't give them grief for money, making money in the first quarter of 2020. If you don't 2022, also, Mark. 2022, if you don't also take into account, they lost money for five straight years. Right. Right. So this is good for Exxon. This is them keeping their people working. This is keeping their facilities up top notch. And then it's even really cool. One of their things they're pumping more money into is their low carbon business unit. Right. right. So by them being successful now, they get to put more of the capital into low carbon solutions. So this is good for everybody. It's really good to see the market reward Exxon for doing such a good job. All right. So the next article is DOE program seeks to reuse abandoned oil wells for geothermal production. And if anybody hasn't listened to our low carbon solutions podcast with Joe Petir, you have to. Is that what it's still called? Is it look? You know, you're. I think you're right. Yeah. We, cha- <laughs> we changed the name of the show. We have so many. It's, it's hard to keep track. Or is it energy transition solutions? I think no, it's that's energy, it. Yeah. Yeah, it's energy transition solutions. I'm sorry, Joe. But Joe is one of our doctors that's on our staff, a doctor and, and geophysicist. He's heavy into geothermal. He's taught me a whole bunch, but still knows a gazillion times more than I know. But one of the cool things about this is, and if you don't know this, people, as you drill down in the earth, after a certain point, temperatures start going up and it continues to grow up until you hit magma, until you hit right. molten <laughs> rock, right? And so you can use that heat for a lot of things. And typically in parts of the world, they did use geothermal to generate electricity, basically generating steam to drive a steam turbine. And so other parts of the world where they still had geothermal, but the water wasn't hot enough or didn't flow well enough to generate steam, they discounted as geothermal. What everybody just kind of glazed over is you could still use that heat. So this program is going to take a bunch of schools that need heat in the winter in the middle of the country and up north, and they're going to take old wells, and they're going to pump water through it, pull that heat out of the ground, and heat the schools. What a great idea. Yeah, what a great idea. And so they're not having to to produce electricity. And if they try to produce electricity, there's a big drop in efficiencies from converting to the thermal heat to actual electricity. So why not just use the thermal heat? Because honestly, it doesn't take that much temperature to keep people comfortable versus trying to make steam to, to generate electricity. So I think this is a fantastic program and the cool thing is the world is but the u.s also is filled with a lot of wells that are plugged and abandoned that we can go back in and use that heat to heat things like barns for cattle and chickens in the middle of winter and for people and keeping roads from icing and and this is just a great freaking idea so they dropped 8.4 million dollars in grants and i think this is a wonderful thing i would actually like to jump in and try to help them so if anybody's listening <laughs> that's involved in this doe program reach out to us i would love to get you all on our on joe's show and, and publicize this for y'all yeah definitely all right so the next one is nord stream 2 Russian gas pipelines long wait for approval. So let's just talk about the pipeline approval. If you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know my opinion, you know what I think is going on over there. But basically, Russia has been working this pipeline to deliver more natural gas to Europe. It has to go through Germany. Germany wants it to go through. But Germany also has a regulatory body that's involved with this. And that regulatory body, unlike here in the U.S., actually touches a lot of things. Electrical generation, gas, telecommunications, railway, post offices, all under this one agency in Germany. And so the problem is this regulatory agency in Germany is saying, look, all the you've done all the technical requirements to build this pipeline. We get it. It's ready to go through. But the problem is, are you going to comply with our unbundling rules that has come from Europe? And basically, that means that the pipeline owners have to be different than the suppliers of natural gas because they don't want to start developing a monopoly. Right. Yeah. In yeah, this yeah. case, the pipeline is owned by Gazprom, which is owned by Russia, which is owned also owns the all the natural gas in Russia. So it violates the regulations that Germany agreed with in Europe. So unfortunately, there's another panel that has just three members on this panel, and this panel is actually trying to override the Germans' networking ability to force. Gazprom to diversify where they get their natural gas supplies for. Bottom line is 
Because of what's going on in the Ukraine and also because of the need for this gas in Europe, Germany's figuring out a way to kind of look the other way and let the pipeline go through, even though one of their own regulatory requirements is not being met. So not sure how that's okay. It starts destroying your political independence, yep. right? Not the right way to go. So once again, we've been keeping an eye on this project for literally years. We're continuing to keep an eye on it. Without a doubt, I think Germany's going to let it go through. They shouldn't, and we shouldn't let it go through. We should put some really big sanctions on it, but that's not happening. So I, I just, <laughs> Definitely not yeah. happening with this administration. Well, let me just stop there. All right. Next one. Oil groups aren't happy with Gomley sale court ruling. Yeah. So this is a good one, Paige. I kind of want your opinion on this. So basically, and if you don't know this, the largest owner of hydrocarbons in the U.S. is the federal government, right? And they lease these properties out, these resources out, predominantly in offshore Gulf of Mexico type of stuff. So what happened is last year, when you apply for a lease and you win it, there's a bunch of regulatory financial stuff, legal stuff you have to go through to be approved. And companies were approved and they won these leases so they could start exploring and drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. Just recently, literally the end of January, we had a court, had a judge, a court said that he's putting a stop on those leases that were already awarded because he didn't feel that the previous administration did enough work to make sure that these were environmentally compliant, especially around methane CO2. But Paige, they met the rules when they applied, right? And so they were awarded these leases. So here's a judge stepping in saying, Yes, you met the rules, but I think you should have met other rules that aren't in the requirements. That's not fair. No, that's not fair at all. And it's also, and any of my legal people out there always have a bit of an interest. The judge is there to interpret the law, not to write the law. Right. And to me, this looks like the judge writing the law based upon either his own political or personal beliefs around the environment and the oil and gas industry. I think this is wrong at the highest level. I think this sort of stuff needs to be squashed immediately. We can't let this even start. You know, the judge in the court absolutely has the right to stop this, but only if it violated the original application process or some current law. Not that you think it's violating environmental as far as CO2 and methane releases. So this is just ridiculous. Well, what really bothers me is that Biden has been approving permits. He's actually approved more permits in the past year than Trump did in his first three years of his four-year term. A hundred percent. And you know why? Because the price of pump is so high that nobody can stand it. And don't no hate mail political folks. It doesn't matter whose side is in office, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. Anytime the price of pump goes up, people get upset, right? Well, the environmentalists are really pissed. So I'm sure this had some sway. Yeah. So and let me actually read a quote here. We are reviewing the court's decision concerning deficiencies in the record. Our public lands and waters must be protected to generations to come. Especially in the face of climate crisis, we need to take the time to make significant long overdue program reforms. First thing, climate crisis. There is no climate crisis. Right. right? So this is, I think, a judge stepping outside of his legal boundaries. And we're definitely keep an eye on this. I fully suspect that this is going to be challenged and shot down. And the people that originally won the leases will be able to go back to go to work. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the next one is Shell reroutes oil supplies after cyber attack on German firm. Man, where have we heard of this before? A little place called Colonial Pipeline, maybe? Yeah, Yeah. sounds like it. So Shell got popped, bad guys got in, got into the operating systems of two subsidiaries of Shell's. Once the intrusion was detected, 
They shut things down so the intrusion couldn't spread. They didn't stop it. They just shut everything down, which then shut down their ability to get things like gasoline, diesel to their retail stations. Those stations had to find other providers. And actually, one of the users of the system is actually the largest network of gas stations or petrol stations if you're in Europe in Germany with about 2,300 stations. And so all 2,300 stations literally in hours had to find alternate supplies. Now, here's the amazing thing. They did. Good. Which tells me they had some type of backup plan in case this sort of thing ever happened, which Good. is what should happen. Yeah, absolutely. And then once everything was shot down, the two subsidiaries brought in their cyber teams with a little outside help from, I believe, Lockheed Martin and one of our sponsors, actually, IBM. And they came in, they figured out the intrusion with the bad guys, dear, they fixed it. They're still doing forensics on this. They're trying to actually figure out exactly where it came from, where it went. Now, of course, they will never release that information right. to us. Yeah. But I tell you what, if I'm a bad guy and I hack Shell, don't think there's not going to be repercussions. Oh, no. Yeah. So it looks like this was handled very well. Unfortunately, we're going to have more of this as we go through time instead of less of this. So, you know, if you're in the oil and gas industry and you haven't paid any attention to your cybersecurity program, you need to. Right. All right. So the next one is merger and acquisition deals return to pre-COVID levels in 2021. It's so cool that these companies bought and sold and merged. There's a bunch of going on. We reached, I think, about $181 billion in mergers and acquisitions at the end of last year, which is about a 70% increase over the year before, which is awesome. There's been a bunch of $1 billion years plus. There have been two big deals in Australia. There have been a bunch here in North America. We have pipeline deals happening. It's just great. And some of the larger ones were Samaritan and Energy with a Cabot. And then we had, let's see, we had Southwest Energy picked up Indigo Natural Resources. Pomero Partners acquired Goodrich. And then we've got a bunch of other acquisitions in the works. The Samarex Energy and Cabot Oil and Gas was the largest one. Yep. And the largest actual prospects or mineral rights acquisition was BP's buying a London's energy and gas portfolio and then ConocoPhillips acquisition of Shell Permian Basin position. So a lot of that selling is being pushed by ESG, which actually means the buying companies are getting good deals. They're not getting it for pennies on the dollar like they did in 2020. They're still getting good deals. It will be interesting to see in 10 years if some of these large players that let loose a lot of acreage in the Permian for ESG metrics are going to regret the decision of doing that because now some of these players own all of their assets. And when you own that much assets, it's much easier to make money. Yep. All right. So next one is Biden is sending more than $1 billion to states to plug in abandoned oil and gas wells. You don't hear me say that very often, but freaking love this. I went through this to make sure there wasn't a strong political slant. And there is a strong political slant, but you know what? I'm okay with it. The political slant is this money to – so when you drill a well and you're finished, there's a process called plug and abandonment or P&A where you basically put the well back to as close to natural as you can and you ensure that it won't leak for future generations, right? And so unfortunately, a lot of the old wells in the U.S. weren't drilled to modern standards. I mean, Paige, I've seen cast iron casing, which is crazy, right? Yeah. I've actually seen terracotta casing. Oh. Clay, like oh. you make flat – yeah, like that's really that's old. That's crazy. I've seen where the cement jobs weren't done right. I've seen where they've had other wells drilled too close. And so just a, a mess. And now most of the states, including here in Texas, the operators that drill the wells now have to put money up front and have a bond. So no matter what happens, that well eventually gets plugged and abandoned properly. But the old wells are the problem. And so the political slant in this is that Biden's administration is saying they're 
putting this $1 billion into P&A, these old wells, to stop methane emissions. Honestly, I don't care. I mean, whether that's real or not, the fact that they're actually putting money into it is the important thing because there's a lot of wells in the U.S. that were not abandoned properly. And I just think this is awesome. It's first come, first serve. The money goes is going out to 26 states that submit its notice of intent. So basically the states that say, hey, we need money, we have problems. Texas is one of those. I just think this is awesome. So as much grief as I give our current administration about stuff, I'm going to give them props for this. This is the right thing to do. It may not be 100% for the right reason, but it's absolutely the right thing to do. And that amount of money is going to actually help a lot in plugging a lot of these wells. I don't know if it says it anywhere in this article, but is it specific for federal wells that need it or just all wells? So it doesn't say in this article. I assumed it was all wells up to, and it was up to the state. Okay. But all even right. if it's only on federal lands, it's still, they're fixing bad wells. Yeah, you know, awesome. absolutely. I was just curious. Yeah. So I just think this is awesome. So, you know, like I said, you won't hear me say this very much, but good job, Biden. All right. So the next one, Exxon joins Chevron in Permian oil search as peers preach caution. So this is really cool. And we've talked about this a bunch on the shows, maybe not in a way that made sense, like tied it all together. So I'm going to try to tie it all together here. So up until, say, 2016, so let me actually go further back in that. So in the U.S., most of the operators that get oil on the ground are small companies, two, three, four, 20-man shops. It's not the big guys. It's not the Exxons and the Shells. And up until about 2016, they were incited to grow. And so most of those companies need cash, need capital. They don't have the internal capital to do this. So what they do is they drill a well. They would take that production number and show somebody in finance, like we're making this much natural gas and oil. So that would equals this amount of money. So then they would get a loan for another well and another, almost like a Ponzi scheme, right? So they were incited to grow, not to make a profit. Well, at some point that had to end. And that ended with our downturn in 2015, 2016, when investors realized that growth was not a great strategy. They had to be profitable. So now the investor money for the independent operators are looking at companies that can make a profit, not grow. So this article is really good in showing one of the advantages the super majors have, even though they don't produce as much oil in the country as the independents. So Exxon and Chevron, when they need capital to grow, they don't have to find investors. It's their own capital, right? Mm -hmm. So what this article is talking about is while the rest of the independent operators are being very cautious and making sure their investor money is ear-tagged toward profit, Exxon and Chevron, if they want to, could earmark their operations toward growth, which means they're going to outgrow the competitors, which are the independent operators. And because they don't have investor money that would be pulled back because they have a growth strategy, they can do it anyway. So this article is talking about how Exxon and Chevron, Exxon especially, is going to up its production in the Permian, and it's all growth. And what they're doing is they're pulling ahead. As they grow, even though they may not be profitable, they'll be able to build the infrastructure, so the pipelines to bring those hydrocarbons to market, the pipelines to move that produce water. And at some point, that's given them such a huge competitive advantage over the independents that are forced to make a profit because of what investors think. So this is really a cool, it's actually, this is a pretty radical thing going on. It's going to fly under the radar of most people, but I'm really interested to see if this strategy is going to work. I've known Exxon and Chevron for a very long time. When they both do something, it's 100% legit. They don't make mistakes like this. So I think this is probably a great strategy move by the Yeah, I was going to say very strategic. Yep. All right. So the next one, oil records, strongest January in over 30 years. How cool is that? We've been hurting for so long that it's, oh man, it's literally awesome that oils are this high. We actually, we're recording this on Saturday the 5th and WTI is at 92.31, Brent's at 93. Awesome. Now we're almost at a hundred and that hundred dollar number scares the bejeebies out of me and y'all know why, because a lot of independent producers are going to go in production. We'll deal with that later. Well, I'll say if it's going, I'm firmly believe it's going to break a hundred dollars a barrel. I don't want it to, firmly believe it will. 
it's really a supply story. The supply is not yet to the point where we can bring prices down. Even though world demand is not back to where it was before, the supply isn't there either. And we're in the winter, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I was a trader right now, I would be bullish on all this still. You know, there's still not enough hydrocarbons out there. OPEC is out there talking about how they can increase production. I don't believe it for a second. I think they're maxed out. If we want to increase production, it's either come from Russia or us, which probably means it's going to come from Russia. <laughs> but, you know, this is really cool that, you know, we have these strong numbers and these strong numbers just drive growth, jobs, prosperity. I just don't want to get another cycle where we, we drive oil back to $10 a barrel again. So please, 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 if you're an independent operator, enjoy making all this money. Don't start oversupplying the market. Show a little bit of constraint. Yeah. Okay. So the next one is Shell to supply oil to Pemex's Texas refinery under long-term contract. So we talked about this a long time ago about Pemex is buying the Deer Park refinery here in in Texas. Mm -hmm. And back in that last time we talked about, I talked about how it was very strategic that Shell was selling the refinery business, but keeping the terminal. And so when you read this article, Shell to supply oil to Pemex's Texas refinery under long-term contract, that means Shell is going to take its oil that it can acquire, bring it to the refinery that used to be theirs. Pemex will then buy the oil, but then will also have to pay for the transportation at the terminal. They will refine it, so they'll do all the hard, dirty work. Then those hydrocarbons, which will be turned into gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, benzene, acetane, polypropylene, all that stuff, has to be exported. So it hits the terminal, so Shell gets to charge them again to mm-hmm. export the products they made from the oil that Shell just sold them. This is financial genius. <laughs> and I'm not saying Shell took advantage of Pemex. Pemex wants a refinery stronghold in the U.S. This made most perfect sense. Pemex is looking at a retail strategy here in the U.S. based upon the loyalty to brands that most people from Latin America have, which I think is awesome. This just shows that even though Shell is pushing really hard in the renewable space, they are fully aware that the money to be made right now is hydrocarbons and they're taking full advantage of it. Well, geez, Mark, we've got a lot of Exxon Mobil and a lot of Shell. <laughs> yeah. And for my friends week. at Exxon Mobil, I'm not doing this as a favor. That's just where the news is right yeah, now. Yeah, no, you're right. So last one, Exxon Mobil restructures to enhance effectiveness, moving headquarters to Houston. Yep. So I'm old enough to remember the executive headquarters for Exxon in Irving, Texas. And it used to be on Fridays, if you walked in with a tie, you had to cut it off with a pair of scissors. You couldn't take it off or they wouldn't let you in the building, right? I tell you another story about going to meet the VP at Deepwater Operations. And I got in the elevator and there's a maintenance man in there, dirty boots, jeans, had a toolbox hand, super nice guy, had a cigar in his mouth that wasn't lit. And so I'm just talking to him about things like the weather. And actually, we were talking about duck hunting. And we get off the elevator on the same floor. We walk in the same office. He was the VP of water <laughs> operations at ExxonMobil. His light went out on his desk. And instead of calling help, he went in his truck, got his tools, he'll fix it himself. Right? Well, that probably saved him some time from waiting. Well, it's just the attitude of ExxonMobil. It's those stories which shows you the culture of that company. And like I said, I love ExxonMobil. Death don't like doing business with y'all, but I, I love the culture. <laughs> I love the people over there. And so this is really cool. So Exxon's taken those parts and pieces that are still scattered, moving everybody to Houston to their corporate headquarters, which is phenomenal. We're outside of spring if you haven't seen it already. Yeah, and then in the Woodlands, and oh, I used to call it Exxon World. So are they moving to that specific spot or are they moving? No, they're moving everybody Houston. to that spot and then shutting down those other buildings. Okay. And then the other things, they're taking their fuel refinery business and their petrochemical business and combine it, which they should, right? So they end up with just a few business lines. It'll be ExxonMobil, the upstream company, the product solutions, and ExxonMobil, low-carbon solutions. And then they're going to be all supported by a single technology organization, ExxonMobil Technology. So Exxon's really changing the way it does stuff. And I've known Exxon for over 25 years. They've never made this amount of changes in this short amount of time, which tells you that they know that they need to change. Now, the other thing that is not in this article is I've heard from 
quite close friends and a lot of other people that the executives are given a ultimatum. Oh, you don't have a choice. You're going to do like last time where you can still stay in Irving or Dallas, even though headquarters in Houston and you'll have to make a visit once a week or whatever. You either move or you're out of here. Um, well, that's pretty that's, that's cut not and dry. typically like Exxon, right? The being cut and dry is like Exxon, but typically not to their executives. There's also some rumors going around that if you take the package and you move, that they've cut the dollar amount of the moving package for their executives. And once again, that's a rumor. I don't know whether it's true or not, but I think this is a great move by Exxon. They need to consolidate everybody. They don't need to have these multiple locations. I like the fancy they're streamlining their businesses. And I even like the fact that internally they're building this Exxon Technologies group to support the rest of the businesses. Because right now, each one of the businesses using ExxonMobil has its own IT shop. It's crazy. There's a lot of overlap, a lot of redundancies, a lot of wasted money, especially in things like supply chain. So this is really cool. And it's, you know, Exxon probably should have did this a little while ago, but I love the fact that they're doing it now. Now, I'll tell you what, if you live in that spring woodlands area and you have a house and you want to sell it for top dollar, in the next month or two is going to be time because there's not a lot of houses. It's a seller's left. market right yeah. now anyway. And Exxon corporate relocation will be buying these houses for their people that are moving. So Man, if we had a time machine, we could have went back and bought a bunch of houses back. And, no. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. There's other things we could do with the time machine. Probably more fun. Yeah, exactly. All right. So that's the news stories. Real quick, if you're in the Houston area and need a place to hang out, go to the Canon. They're our co-working partner of choice. Also, where we do all of our industry mixers. Just go to the front desk. Say you're with OGGN or you listen to OGGN. They give you a free date pass. It's really cool. And then grab your MEM t-shirt, but you can't, can you, Paige? No. Because you're gone. Yeah. But you know what you don't know? What? Oh, our, someone finally came up with something to give away? We have a bunch of them, actually. Oh? Yeah, but they're all in the first Friday Q&A, which listeners, you don't get to hear until we record the first Friday Q&A. But I remember one of them, which I thought was a good idea. How about a coin? How about a collectible, almost like a challenge coin with IBM on one side and an OGG on the other side? I like that idea. Yeah. But anyway, got to wait till we get first Friday Q&A to see what everybody else volunteered. We had some good ones come in. I could. Weekly rig count. Where are we? As of February 4th, the United States is at 613. We're up three. Canada is at 218, up one. And January for international is 841, up seven. Good numbers. Yeah, looking good. And speaking of good numbers, if around the 24th, which is a Thursday of this February, you don't have anything to do, we're doing our industry mixer at the Canon. This one's on the challenges of growing enterprises. Oh? Yep. So if you're a mid-sized oil and gas company or any company, actually, and you're experiencing growth right now and you're struggling with growth, which actually we're doing the same thing right now with OGGN, this could be a whole panel on with experts on how you deal with that growth. How do you make sure you retain your people? How do you make sure you don't overspend? How do you make sure you don't lose your small business culture? So it should be a blast. Like I said, this Thursday, 24th at the Canon, hit any of our social for the link to sign up. There's a nominal fee. I think it's 20 bucks, but the money we raise goes to fight human sex trafficking. So your money actually helps rescue little girls from modern day slavery. Oh, and on March 10th, we're at the same place. We're doing International Women's Day. Basically, OGGM's teaming up with Women Offshore, and we're doing industry mix to honor International Women's Day. That will be on March 10th from 6 to 9. I'm actually moderating a panel with four lovely ladies, so I hope to see you there. They're not just lovely ladies. These are all gas power hitters. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. So if you want to come and support International Women's Day, if you want to come see Paige moderate your panel, if you want to meet oil and gas business leaders, which will be that's who will be in the audience. Once again, March 10th, Thursday at the Canon. Just check out our social. You'll yeah, find come it. Up, come check it out and let's break the bias together. Yep. Break the bias together. I like that. 
Speaking of light and stuff, if you want to show up in our first Friday Q&A, you know the drill. Either go to allingassthisweek.com or OGGN. There's a place for you to ask a question. If we read your question on there, you get a big shout out. If you'd like myself or any of our experts to come moderate a panel, uh, come speak at your event, bring a live podcast to your event. We're actually, we'll be in Midland in the middle of, I think, February 14th doing a live podcast at the Trolling Club. Let us know. I'd be happy to share the details. And that's about it. Paige, you ready to get out of here? Yeah, I am. All right, folks. Remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.